Well, I'll apologize if I have to clear my throat or drink some tea. I'm getting over a touch of the black plague. So, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this glorious day, the Lord's Day that we have to come together to be with your people, to worship you, and to learn from your word. Uh, we thank you for Christ and all that he has done for us in coming as a man and uh, living a perfect life and dying and, and resurrecting from the dead and ascending and being our mediator. And uh, Lord, I pray this morning as we learn about the kingdom of God and the mission of the church that you would open our eyes to glorious things in your word and that we would receive them and live them out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're into chapter five of the book on what is the mission of the church. And chapter five is entitled Kings and Kingdoms Understanding God's Redemptive Role. And I can relate a little bit to uh, what the author said at the beginning, which was that he didn't really learn much about the kingdom of God growing up in the church. And uh, I, I didn't either. I, I heard the term, but didn't really know what exactly that meant. Uh, but it's, it's extremely important. It's all throughout the Bible, as we'll see. And it's the first thing that Jesus preaches about, his, his first uh, well, in Matthew four seventeen, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is a really good chapter on what exactly is the kingdom of God, I thought. And uh, so my goal is to go through it and, and talk about what they, what they taught in that. But also what I want to do is tie it into the rest of the book a little bit, because I think that was... Perhaps one thing the authors could have done better is tie into everything that they've taught, chapter 5. So we've got this good teaching about the kingdom of God, but how does it affect the way we think about the mission of the church? So hopefully I can, I can tie those things together. If we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, a good first thing to do would be to define what it is. So the term kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are uniquely New Testament terms. They're not used in the Old Testament. However, the concept of God's kingdom and the kingdom of heaven is throughout the Old Testament. God creates man, and he gives him a law. He, is, he uh, tells him, you shall not eat of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man falls course, and soon after that, God establishes a people for himself. He calls Abraham, and, and then God gives a fuller law, or at least a, uh, a record, recorded law. We know that they had the law before the Ten Commandments were given, because people knew what was right and what was wrong, but the Ten Commandments were given officially to the Hebrew people, and then eventually God establishes a king over them. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this concept that we see that God is the king. He himself is the king, and that he will reign over his people. That theme comes into a more, a more full fulfillment, if I can say that, in the New Testament. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be fulfilled when Christ returns, but we see it more fully in the New Testament. It was a major theme of Jesus' preaching and of the apostles' teaching, preaching as well. As I already mentioned, that was the first thing that Jesus preached about. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ told a lot of parables, and most of them are related to the kingdom of God. 
Paul in Acts 28, 31 was in Rome and he was, quote, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. In chapter 1, the authors made the statement, they said, we want the church to remember that there is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. If we hope only for renewed cities and restored bodies in this life, we are of all people most to be, pit- most to be pitied. So through, through this study, this book is trying to correct certain aspects of what they've termed missional thinking. And one of the aspects that can get out of balance in this is providing for earthly needs and thinking that that is the mission of the church to the point where the gospel actually gets left out. And we saw in a couple of Andrew's uh, teachings on this that there were certain people who actually thought that the, the evangelical church had abandoned the gospel by actually making Jesus the center of the gospel message which is exactly the opposite of what is true. When missional thinking becomes all about tackling social problems and injustices and not about making disciples, not about preaching the gospel, not about making people members of the kingdom of God, it actually ceases to be Christian thinking on the subject. At that point, if that's your goal, if that's your church's goal, you're just running a charity organization you're not running a Christian church anymore. If your mission is just to tackle social problems, to provide cheap housing or whatever it may be, you've ceased to be the church. The terms that kingdom living and kingdom worker are also referred to previously in the book. And if these terms mean living obediently to Christ's commands, fulfilling the, the, uh, the Great Commission, preaching the gospel... I have no issue with those terms, though I never really use them. But if they mean something like working for societal change or, or social justice or something like that with no, no reference or no need to proclaim the gospel, then again, at that point, kingdom living, kingdom work doesn't actually have anything to do with Christianity. It's just charity work. So with this in mind, let's actually look at what the New Testament says about the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom of God is the redemptive rule of God over his people. It's not a geographical rule. So there are no more physical boundaries, unlike in the Old Testament. Remember, in the Old Testament, we had Israel. They had geographical boundaries. And everyone who was not in Israel was was excluded from the kingdom of God. They could come and join, but it was contained to that one nation, that one people. In the New Testament, however, Christ's rule is over his people, and it's dynamic and relational. It doesn't have borders anymore. In fact, the New Testament speaks of us as being foreigners in our earthly existence. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, talking about the, all the, the faithful men and women who've gone before us, says, these all died in faith, not having the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And then we look at 1 Peter 2.11 as well. It says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Notice, we're not called citizens of earth. We're, We're referred to as sojourners, people who are journeying through a foreign land. We're strangers and pilgrims. We shouldn't feel at home on earth. 
the rule of, of God over his, over his people is specifically over his redeemed people. Not everyone, but over his redeemed people. In the following verses, note that some of the people in these verses are members of the kingdom of God, and some of them are not. Some of them will be excluded. Some of them will find it very difficult to enter into the kingdom of God. And I realize that maybe some of this is really obvious to us, but bear with me here. In Mark 10, 14, it says, but when Jesus saw it, this is talking about the disciples uh, shooing away the little children because, you know, children are loud and they make noises and they need things. And it makes it really hard to listen to sermons, right? So I can, I can relate to that. But it says, when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. So it's something for uh, us to learn a little bit about. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And then in verses 23 through 25 of the same chapter, he says, uh, it says, Jesus then looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In Luke 18, 17, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. In Luke 13, 28, it says, There will be weeping, of gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then finally, in Colossians 1.13, it says, Christ, speaking of Christ, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Now, it's important to notice here that none of these verses have to do with social programs or soup kitchens or bringing order from chaos, as some have said we're supposed to do, or human trafficking or equality or equity or any kind of social program that you can think of. The only way that God's kingdom, the rule of God, is extended is when another soul is redeemed by Christ's saving work. This also means that God's kingdom does not include those who are unsaved. Right? We just read this in, first, in Colossians 1.13. A person cannot be in the kingdom of God if he is in the kingdom of darkness. Those of us who are redeemed can and should bear witness to the kingdom of God, live like people who are in it, who are, who are sojourners, who are traveling and pilgrims. We should preach the kingdom of God just as Christ and the apostles did. But that does not extend it to people who remain unrepentant in their sins. And certainly social programs do not bring people into the kingdom of God who are not in it. But I hope that what I just stated seems really obvious to you that those who are in the kingdom of darkness are not in the kingdom of God, and that social programs don't bring people into the kingdom of God. But as we've seen through reading this book, not everybody actually agrees with that. Not everybody thinks that the gospel of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, is actually central to the gospel and central to the mission of the church. 
But as we've seen, since the kingdom of God is his redemptive rule over his people, this should impact the way we think about the mission of the church and the, the concept of good deeds, good works. The mission of the church as an institution is to bring people into the kingdom of God via the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples out of those people. Social renewal, on the other hand, is not the mission of the church. It may be a mission for individuals in the church. It may be something that you're passionate about, and that's a good thing, and you should be involved in those things. Serving at the Union Gospel Mission is a good work, and we should do those things. But the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And by the way, if you're going to the gospel mission or you're fighting human trafficking or you're doing any of these things and you're not proclaiming the gospel at the same time, again, you're just doing charity work, right? You're leaving something out that ought to be there. Now, of course, as I've already kind of said here, this doesn't mean that we won't or shouldn't do good work. But as was stated in the book earlier, as the church loves the world so loved by God, we will work to relieve suffering wherever we can, but especially eternal suffering. If we fail to relieve eternal suffering while simultaneously relieving temporal suffering, all we're doing is making the road to hell more comfortable. Second thing about the kingdom of God is that it is the reign of the Messiah, Jesus. I will quote Colossians 1.13 one more time. <laughs> he, meaning Christ, has de- or God, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And Paul tells us it is Christ's kingdom. Jesus himself refers to it as my kingdom in John 18.36 It says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. In Luke 23, 42, it says, then then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is the, the, the man dying on the cross next to Jesus. And Jesus didn't correct him. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 this is not my kingdom. This is, this is someone else's. He just simply told him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus' reign is such that there is no other way. It's his kingdom, and there is no other way that you can get into the kingdom of God except through him. I hope that sounds familiar. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one mediator of this kingdom, and it is Christ himself. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and men, the man Christ Jesus. And there is only one name by which we may be saved, Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, since Christ reigns over his people, since he is the only mediator, since he is the, it is the only name by which men can be saved, we should then ask, well, what does Christ want us to do? What are we here for? Are we simply to be a blessing, as we saw some argue earlier in the book? 
or as others argue, are we supposed to particularly pay attention to the economically destitute, the poor among us? Is that the mission of the church? And while these things are good, Christ did give us a specific task in the Great Commission. We had a whole chapter on the Great Commission passages. We are to go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples. And I'll, I'll make a comment. I think it's much easier to be a blessing to people. It's much easier to help the poor. It's much easier to do, try to do something about human trafficking It's much easier to try to provide affordable housing than it is to share the gospel with your sister who refuses to even consider the possibility of coming to church. And I think that's why this teaching of just be a blessing to people and, you know, let's work towards social renewal and let's do all these things that they are good things. I think that's why it's so attractive because it's much easier to do those things than to proclaim the gospel. But the truth is, if we ignore the Great Commission, the very last thing that Christ told us to do before he ascended, we are not, as a church, fulfilling the mission of the church. Any questions so far? Okay. Thirdly, the kingdom of God involves the age to come breaking into the present age. Excuse me. The Bible gives us pictures of what the kingdom will be like. In Isaiah 65, it tells us there will be joy, there will be happiness, there will be no tears, no death, no sickness, no disease. There will be perfect peace, perfect security. In Revelation, it echoes the same things. It tells us of the New Jerusalem where God and his people will dwell together perfectly forever with no tears, again, no pain, where the nations will be healed and where God's people will worship him perfectly forever. All of this is a glorious picture of the conclusion of the fulfillment of what is coming and what actually has already come in part. We're not there yet. However, the kingdom of God is here in part. There's this this overlap. They called it the inaugurated eschatology where the kingdom of God has broken into this present age, but it's not fully realized. And Joel 2, 28 through 29 makes clear that the current age experiences the coming of God's kingdom. It says, And it shall come to pass that afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my main servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. So we live in this this overlap of the kingdom having broken in and yet not being completely fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, as Jesus said, and yet he also promises that he will be with us even to the end of the age. So in God's wisdom, we live in a time in which Christ has inaugurated the age to come in the present age. So we, we live as redeemed people, and yet we also struggle against sin. We enjoy the presence of the Spirit, and yet we also grieve him at times. We've been raised with Christ, and we seek those things which are above, and yet before we attain those things which are above, we will return to dust before the final resurrection. We walk as children of God, and we are citizens in heaven, and yet we live in the midst of a crooked 
and perverse generation. And since we live in this age of overlaps, the, the kingdom that has come and yet the kingdom which has not yet fully been realized, we ought to pursue. What do you think? The mission of the church, which is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, knowing that on this side of heaven, we will never solve all the problems that we see around us. Dreams of a utopian society are foolhardy, but because we know that Christ reigns and that the age to come has invaded, invaded the present age, we can, we can and should go forth boldly, proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, not because we think that we can finally end hunger and poverty and homelessness, but we know that poverty and hunger and homelessness is not the greatest problem people face. And all the while, like I said before, we can, we can and we should try to relieve as much temporal suffering as we can, and yet we should be more concerned about relieving eternal suffering. Remember, a point that they made earlier in the book is that Christ never went into a city or a region with the stated purpose of healing the sick or feeding the hungry. He did those things. But the message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He never went simply to relieve people's sufferings. He always went to relieve their eternal condition. Fourthly, the kingdom of God is manifest in, manifested in the present age in the church. And it is only manifested in the church in this present age. There is no other entity that manifests the kingdom of God. In Matthew 16, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus tells him, quote, on this rock I will build my church. Now the rock was not Peter. The rock is Christ himself. In 1 Peter, interestingly, 1 Peter 2.7, he tells us uh, that the stone which was rejected has become the chief cornerstone, that being Christ. Ephesians 2.20, Paul tells us, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And in 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul writes that uh, he preaches Christ to the nations, quote, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The proclamation of the gospel, which happens in the church, is how the kingdom of God is made known to the world. It is not made known through social programs. And I know I'm kind of harping on this a little bit, or maybe a lot, but social programs do not make the gospel known. They do not proclaim the kingdom of God in and of themselves. There, there's lots of good things that we can and should do, but the mission of the church as an institution is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, not run social programs, or become a charity organization. So I think you can see that all of this has a lot to do with the mission of the church, this idea of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The priority of the church is to proclaim the gospel, not running a soup kitchen, not providing affordable housing, not getting involved in whatever the flavor of the second is on Twitter, in short, engaging in social renewal is not the proclamation of the gospel. Therefore, 
that itself is not the mission of the church. Any questions? Yeah, Renee, sorry. What was point number two? I don't remember. <laughs> it's Christ. It's, yes, it's the, it's the reign of, of the Messiah Jesus. You're welcome. Consider this. Let's, let's just say that we bought into the idea that the mission of the church is to relieve as much temporal suffering as we can, and that that is how we extend the kingdom of God, by bringing order out of chaos or something like that. The devil will be very happy with that. The devil will be very, very happy if all we do is lots of good works and we fail to proclaim the gospel. So the question is now, when will the kingdom of God finally and fully be established? Well, in short, it will only be established finally and fully when Christ returns. Matthew 24, Revelation 19 through 20 make this clear. And there's a caution in this as well. We should not make social renewal the mission of the church. Can social renewal happen? Yes, it can happen. But it's only as a byproduct of the gospel being proclaimed to all nations. Um, The authors made a point that I'm going to disagree with. And uh, they, they said that mission statements like transform the city and transform the world or change the city, change the world, say they go, they go too far beyond what the Bible tells us to expect to see in this world during this age. And I, I disagree with that because what happens when the gospel reaches one person? What happens to that person? Their heart is changed, right? Their desires are changed. They turn from doing evil things to doing righteous things. So what happens when the gospel reaches a nation The hearts of the people in that nation are also changed. And that brings about societal renewal. That brings about what we would call, perhaps, revival. That can change entire nations, and we've actually seen that that happen. Now, all of this is imperfect. That doesn't mean we're going to have perfect Christian nations at some point. But the gospel changes people's hearts, which does change societies. Because societies are simply collections of people, right? Everywhere the gospel goes, just a couple of examples, literacy rates go up. That's a good thing. Uh, Humanity is elevated in those societies. The the value of a human being is elevated in those societies. Uh, The place of women in society is elevated. If you would like to see what a godless society looks like and how they treat women... There's plenty of them that you can look at. Compare that with places where the gospel is present, and you will see there is a difference. That is the result of the gospel taking hold of people's hearts and changing society. However, if we are seeking to change our culture apart from the proclamation of the gospel, even even by just let's make lots of Christian music and lots of Christian art and let's be really good Christian filmmakers and really good Christian musicians and good Christian construction workers and all this kind of stuff, if that's divorced from the gospel, 
we're not doing anything worthwhile, right? If we do not, if we if we proclaim the gospel, on the other hand, we proclaim it, and we do not expect to see societies changed and the world changed. We're denying the power of the gospel, aren't we? We're saying that the gospel doesn't actually change people's hearts. So how will the kingdom be finally and fully established? Only when Christ returns will it fully be established. And yet we still proclaim the gospel knowing that that is going to change things. It is going to make a difference in the here and now. The authors are also not super comfortable with the language of building the church or even with saying that the kingdom of God grows. And yet Jesus told parables of the mustard seed, for instance, saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in its field, which indeed is the least of all these seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom of God certainly does grow. I think that is the point that he is making. As more souls are added to it, it grows and it becomes a greater influence. And we are employed in that work, you and I, as the church. We are employed in the work of proclaiming the gospel and making, the disciple, making disciples. Look at, the, uh, look at the one another statements in the Bible. Every redeemed person in this room has a role to play in each other's life. I need you, you need me to grow, become better disciples, and proclaim the gospel more clearly. Yes, one of the points they made is we don't make the kingdom grow. It is the work of the Spirit of God. Just as though we we don't actually sanctify ourselves, and yet we are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So there is work to be done, and it is our mission, and we ought to go do it with boldness, knowing that Christ does reign over the kingdom of God, and he will succeed in it. Any questions? Andrew. I can hear the Neo-Kyperians rumbling. <laughs> uh, thinking to themselves in, uh, in, in line with Kuiper, but, but what about the fact that there is no square inch over this world upon which Christ does not say, mine? If you're saying that the uh, kingdom of God is the church in the church, and that uh, the root is the rule of God over His redeemed people, what about the fact that Christ is King overall? How do we fit those two things together? Well, He is King overall, whether His subjects are submitting themselves to Him or not. Right? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus, that Christ is Lord. And uh, our job is to proclaim the gospel so that more of those people who are bending their knee are doing so willingly and not being forced. So that, I don't know if that answers your question. but Though that statement is true, that every inch is mine, um, we are in the not yet. Yeah. Uh, Romans 8 says that the entirety of creation is groaning, waiting for the final adoption of the children of God. Yeah. So... It, yeah, it's all being deeded to Christ, but he hasn't necessarily taken possession of it, and he's going to take possession at his coming. Hmm. Thank you. Catastrophically, not every inch, each mm-hmm. inch at a time. Any other questions? Yeah, Adam. So last 
the last couple of weeks, uh, Andrew showed us some extreme positions, even shocking quotes. But the, um, the mission of changing the city, uh, it, it raises a red flag, but we, it, it doesn't sound in opposition uh, to the Great Commission. You know, one soul at a time, one relationship at a time. So, I don't know what the question was, but um, no, changing the, changing the city is not a good goal if you're going to do it without proclaiming the gospel. Because at that point, like I said, you're just doing a charity work. Right. Or, but the, that, that goal is, is short and cute, but it doesn't exclude, doesn't preclude witnessing. It doesn't necessarily, but I think if your priorities are change the city and the gospel is not before that priority, we're going to change the city, but the way we're going to do that is by proclaiming the gospel and, and bringing people into the kingdom of God. So we can change that by say, changing the city one soul at a time. Right, yeah. Change the city by proclaiming the gospel, right? You know, there's, there's uh, remember Calvin, when he was training pastors, they were training pastors, and then they were sending them back to France, and they were planting churches, and the churches were like 5,000, 6,000, 8,000 people, and that changed France, at least for a short time, right? That's, that's a model of how you change the world, is by proclaiming the gospel and bringing people into the kingdom. So yeah, you can change a whole nation, but not by doing social programs. We change the nation by proclaiming the gospel. I thought, was there another question? No? Okay. Yes, there is. Katie. Um, so my aunt and uncle are part of this health and hope organization where they administer like health and hope? <laughs> yeah, health and hope. So they do I think if, if sharing the gospel is integral to what you're doing, then you're doing kingdom work. What would be better is if that work was tied to a church, like a local church, where when someone does come to faith, they're immediately connected. And that's a big problem, I think, with uh, the like gospel crusades and you know Billy Graham evangelism and stuff like that, which is like, let's try to get people saved just by preaching the gospel, but then there's no connection to a local church. They don't get plugged in. I mean, there's other issues I have with it too, but, but that, is a, that is a problem. So I think if you're, you have a charity work that you're doing and the, the focus of it is, is providing uh, relief from suffering and relief from eternal suffering, the best thing, what should happen, is it's connected to a local church where they can get plugged in immediately. And it, I, that's true of not just charity work, but in everyone in this room. Like, that's why it's so important to be in church. Is if you have a coworker or a friend or a family member who hears the gospel, and you're not going to church, well, where are you going to send them if you're not connected to a local body? So, there was another hand somewhere. Dad had a question. Yeah, Dad. So the Union Gospel Mission is 
They do both, right? Yeah. They, they, but, and they try, their mission is to spread the gospel, but the other part is to help people yeah. transition from the bad life to the good life. Yeah, yeah. But I, do they try to plug people into the local church? I, I don't really know how it necessarily works. I know there's, I mean, we're involved in that, in that yeah. work. So, but do you know, do they refer people to certain churches? Yeah, or? I don't know that they're doing a great job of that. Okay. As a matter of fact, some of the things they do would not allow people to go to church on Sundays <laughs> because they have to work on the oh, Sundays. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. But they're inconsistent, let's say. Yeah. They're trying. They are trying. They're probably doing a better job than some organizations are. Yeah, Tim. No. That's the answer, no. <laughs> the example of scripture is, I think, you know, has to do with the Good Samaritan. Was he proclaiming the gospel by physically ministering to this, you know, the Well, does it say that he proclaimed the gospel to him? I don't think it does. So, the answer is no. You can't. I would have to go back and read that passage to really answer your question because I, I don't have the answer off the top of my head. But no, the whole idea that you're going to uh, proclaim the gospel and sometimes use words, it sounds really nice. It's, it's like a very pious thing to say, but it's foolishness. You cannot save someone without telling them about Christ and what he did and about their sins and their need for salvation and everything that goes along with that. So. Yeah. Remember what the question that Jesus is answering, at the, uh, he, uh, he was asked a specific question, who is my neighbor? That's, yeah, that, that's, that's right. the question yeah. he's answering. Yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't answering, how do I proclaim the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rick, I think, had this hand I was up. just going to comment a little bit more on that question, just about taking care of the person's needs and then presenting the gospel. Then instead of presenting the gospel and saying, go and be well... And this guy's all beat up on the road. So you, you, you do take care of the physical aspect, but you also should be including the spiritual aspect. Yeah, yeah. And there is something to keep in mind, too. So I'll tell a quick story, and then we're going to be out of time. So I went to Seattle, and we talked to a guy who's ministering to people up in Seattle in a very rough neighborhood. And he told the story of a pastor who would take this homeless guy out to lunch on a Friday or something, and He'd buy him lunch, and he'd sit there, and he'd share the gospel with him. And he did this like week after week after week. And eventually the homeless guy said, you know, I'm, I'm never going to believe the gospel. I'm never going to repent. And from that day on, the pastor never, never talked to him again, never took him out to lunch. The, the, the lesson to learn is care for them and actually care for them, not just so that you can pro- proclaim the gospel of them, so you can get a, another notch on your belt or something, right? We can't proclaim the gospel without actually caring for the person. So I think the point is, it's a good point. You care for their physical needs, and you actually care about that person, not just wait for them to become a Christian. Okay, so we're out of time. I can answer your question if you want to ask me afterwards, but let's pray. 
Uh, gracious Lord, we thank you that you, are, uh, that you rule over us, that uh, you have given us this glorious mission of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, as a church uh, the, uh, the courage to do so, and uh, we pray that you'd empower us to do so. We pray that the gospel would be clearly proclaimed. Each week, we pray also that you give us as individuals in our daily life, where, where we're at work or school or wherever we may be, the courage also to proclaim the gospel and to use words and tell people about Christ and uh, call them to repentance. We ask that you would be with us the rest of this day, that you bless our time. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.